Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, November 25th. We begin with a look at the new provincial restrictions surrounding COVID-19. We speak with a syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor about the balancing act politicians face in making decisions during the pandemic, taking into account both science and politics. It's National Addictions Awareness Week. We hear the personal story of a former addict and a mental health advocate and author about the complicated struggles faced by those battling addiction in our province. Next, we speak with Ward Six Councillor Jeff Davison for an update on the ongoing budget talks at City Hall and we get his reaction to the new restrictions put in place by the Alberta government. And finally, it started as something to help get us through the pandemic, but a photography project has turned into much more than that. We flip through the pages of the new Calgary-based book, Portraits. It's 7.09 now, and has the pandemic shifted from science to politics? Michael Tobe is a columnist with Troy Media, a Washington Times contributor and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and he joins us now with his thoughts. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We found an, an article by you in Troy Media, and we want to talk mm-hmm. to you about it. You know, kind of sure. talking about how, obviously, lockdowns, restrictions they they can be very difficult for individuals for businesses yes. but really it's a tough one for politicians isn't it they're in a a very uh, a difficult place really between a hawk and uh, a rock and a hard place on on how to walk that fine line aren't they yeah i think you said that very well i mean although obviously politicians get the brunt of the criticism because well they're the national leaders or provincial leaders or municipal leaders depending on what level of government we're talking about So naturally, people (laughs) want to point their fingers and blame it at someone. But it's actually very, very difficult when you're involved, let's say, using COVID-19, which is what I wrote about in my column. When it's a global pandemic, generally speaking, the people who are in charge, one, are not usually trained as either in in the medical community or in the sciences in general. And even if they are... Infectious diseases is not typically the vocation that most politicians use or or have held in the past. And for that reason, the expertise then shifts away from political leaders to the medical leaders, the medical community, scientific community, research community, etc., because they are the experts. They're the ones we have to listen to. They're the ones who actually read and parse through this information, and they provide the ideas, guidelines, conclusions, etc., that political leaders obviously have to absorb and implement as they see fit. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, and you know, area of expertise versus what these folks do for a living. And you asked the question in your article, do politicians really want to do this? Of course not. Most don't want to be seen as a primary reason why people are out of work and businesses are shuttered. It, it is that interesting thing, good cop, bad cop, and uh, playing mm-hmm. bad cop when an election could be as early as, uh, you know, months from now or four years from now doesn't help your cause, does it? No, it really doesn't. And it doesn't matter ideologically who is in government, whether, say, the individual looking at it or the business owner voted for that person, didn't vote for that person, or quite frankly, and we say this quietly, didn't vote at all. <laughs> but nevertheless, and when you put it all together, of course, put, them, put yourself in their shoes, even if you're irritated at them. And that can be Premier Jason Kenney in Alberta, who I've known for years, a very nice, bright guy who has worked very hard for your problems, or my premier in Ontario, Doug Ford. It doesn't matter who it is. These are positions they don't necessarily want to be in. And as small-c conservatives, which I am too, um, they they are obviously implementing measures which include uh, the promotion of emergency relief funds, which uses tax dollars in the ways that many conservatives, libertarians, and others on the right don't necessarily agree with. It's not part of our DNA, 
But we understand that people and businesses are hurting, and we have to do it to some extent. Again, conservatives obviously try to balance the books as best they can and manage the money as best they can. But unfortunately, you know, it's very hard to do this because no matter what sort of good intentions you are, no matter how much money you earmark for particular things, it never seems to be enough, especially what we're dealing with with COVID-19. Yeah, true balancing act. I mean, we've talked about it this morning, there were, and we all look at it with our own perspective of, of how yeah. it affects us and our family and our livelihoods. So, you know, I think some of the, the restrictions that Kenny put in place last night are good. I think some mm-hmm. didn't go far enough, but, uh, you know, as he talked about too, it's it's he's got to be very careful about not trotting on our rights and freedoms and that seems to be a, you know a big deal for him so he i don't know that they can ever get it right can they yeah i, I think you're absolutely right too and no i don't think they can it, it is a balancing act and i think you've aptly described that the problem is you obviously have your as i said before you have your own personal beliefs or set theories and, and ideas and principles but when you face something like a, a health pandemic, all of it is thrown out the window, literally, because it changes the whole narrative. It changes the way the political story comes out. It changes day to day as you look at the active COVID-19 cases, uh, the number of deaths that occur, which are obviously tragic, and it's heartbreaking to see this. I think that overall, though, Canada has managed things pretty well, all things considered. I mean, obviously, the numbers are going up in your province quite a bit, and they've been going up in my province and others as well. But we're, you know, I know it sounds a little hokey, and so it's always a kumbaya moment when you bring it up. But the theory of we're all in this in this together, we are technically because look, we're all facing it in our own ways, in our households, in our communities. You know, problems that we have with our businesses. We obviously want to, you know, enjoy Christmas, get into the new year, and, and at least get back, hopefully, to some sense of normalcy as these two vaccines, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna, come through. And even AstraZeneca in the UK is actually developing a vaccine which is moving along quite nicely. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, as frustrating as this is, as this horrifying as this is. I think Jason Kenney, your premier, has handled things as best he could. Was it perfect? No, but nobody could have handled it perfectly. No one could handle a situation like this perfectly, but they're doing their best. And I think if nothing else, even in moments of frustration, we should try to sort of sit, you know, sit down, get in their shoes and think about that for a minute. Michael, we've covered provincially and nationally. And as you mentioned, we're all in this together. This is a global pandemic. So I'm wondering if we can look at any other countries yeah, you know, on the globe that are doing things differently or, or maybe doing things better than we are doing in our nation when it comes to governing a, a virus. Well, fair comment, Andrew. And look, obviously we see in Europe that there are countries like uh, Germany, France, the UK, Belgium and others which are having a variety of national lockdowns. Uh, even more, in some cases, more extensive than what we're even facing in Canada or what hopefully we ever face. But they're trying to handle it in that fashion. Whereas if you look at other parts of the world, including you know parts of Asia, Japan, and elsewhere, they have tried to sort of do a bit of a balancing act where they had much stricter lockdowns at the very beginning. Even Greece and Europe also had that as well. And they haven't had to necessarily go as far this time round. However, we have to be realistic about it. And I think both of you know this. Second waves of pandemics historically are worse than the first. Part of that is due to cold weather or weather conditions, and part of that is unfortunately just due to the intensity. I know that people are obviously getting very frustrated with things. 
They, they don't want to be at home. They don't want to have these restrictions. Our freedoms and liberties are definitely being hurt. There's no question about it. But I think we have to be realistic about it. And I've championed it for God, most of my life, mm-hmm. certainly the near 25 years I've been doing this. The freedoms and liberties that we're losing is heartbreaking right now, but it'll be far, far worse if we don't necessarily follow the government regulations, do proper social and physical distancing, wear our masks, wash our our hands, you know the laundry list. If we don't do those things, it's going to be much worse, and it's going to go on much longer, no matter how the vaccines come into play, and no matter how long we have to consistently wear other things, including wearing masks for, as Theresa Tam has alluded, at least another couple of years. So, yes, we can definitely look at other countries and look at the way they've modeled things. I don't think we necessarily want to do what Australia did, which was to lock down parts of Melbourne for weeks on end where people couldn't go anywhere. That's not what we necessarily want. But I think that we should look at, again, what Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and the other premiers are doing, or even the prime minister of this country, Justin Trudeau, and try to do everything that we can, work together as best we can, and just try to bite our tongues when there are certain things that we don't necessarily like or don't necessarily agree with. Great conversation. Thanks for joining us, Michael. My pleasure. Have a great morning. You too. That is Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor, as well as former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. It's 6.09 now, and it is National Addictions Awareness Week. And this morning, we're speaking with two individuals who have overcome their own struggles and are now doing their part to help others that are facing similar battles. This morning, we're joined by Karen Gosby, a mental health and addictions advocate and author, and Ian Rabb, who is a recovering addict and a worker at Sandstone's Addictions Treatment Centre. Good morning to you both. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. morning. Ian, let's start with your story and go back a little bit in time. What's your history and how did you end up going down that road and and becoming an addict? So I I have some feelings around uh, what I believe about addiction. I think I was born with the disease and and ultimately some things transpired in my life in my early childhood that were traumatic that ultimately drove me to the road of addiction. I... uh, I was very different than most people. I, I am, I'm educated. I was a doctor. Um, I lost everything to drugs and alcohol and ended up on the street, at which time my parents intervened and brought me back to Canada because I was living in the United States. And, uh, and it's been almost 20 years that I've been on the, on the recovery path. So um, I think that uh, addiction is something that's internal. I, 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 I really am a believer that um, there's a, conscious separation, a connection missing um, that sometimes uh, drives you to a life um, where where drugs and alcohol or other things become the answer to the solution. And uh, and ultimately, I'm so thankful now that I'm I'm on the right path. And Karen, uh, you are a mental health addictions support advocate and an author. So I'm wondering, you know, how rare or how common is a story like Ian's mentioning he was a doctor, uh, you know, before his path changed and, and, and took this turn. How common is it? Uh, well, I, I mean, that was a main driver for me coming forward with with my story because it's it seems to... Um, People generally don't think as accomplishments and success to have this other side, to have addiction or mental illness attached to it. And it's very much underground. And and my story isn't so much about uh, those two things, but it's about the impact that it has on the people around me, the natural support to the family members. 
And really, Karen, you know, addictions and mental illness, they do very, very often go hand in hand, do they not? Yeah, absolutely, they do. But they can exist without each other as well. Ian, you mentioned that your family essentially rescued you and brought you back from the U.S. And I'm wondering, were there always, uh, you know, those resources? Was this something that they'd constantly tried and and finally something clicked with you? What what was it that made the change for you? That's a great question. Um, Actually, I I had gotten involved in organized crime and the sex trades uh, in the U.S. I had been arrested seven times, and you would think that, um, one of those arrests would have clued me into that there was something wrong. It wasn't until my last interaction with the law when I was looking at a uh, prison sentence in the U.S. of 68 years um, that it kind of triggered like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. And uh, I, I, I don't know why it took so long. I, uh, I got off. I think I was enabled, quite enabled by my parents and also through my career because I had I always had money for the most part. Um, so I was really enabled and, uh, you know, I don't know why it clicked when it clicked. I don't I don't really question that. I, I got help. I'm in the treatment recovery business now, as uh, you know, I'm a, besides being an advocate for the last 15 years, I've started a charity. I started a treatment center. I now work with the Edgewood health network, uh, where we have mental health and addiction treatment programs across the country. Uh, one of those centers being in Calgary. Karen, let's uh, go to the, uh, the the program, the campaign that's running now through Sandstone Addiction Treatment Centre. It's not personal. That's the name of the campaign. Tell us a bit about it and, w- and what you're hoping Canadians will do with this information. Well, it, as soon as I um, came forward with the story, the reason why I, I um, advocated right from the beginning was because any bit of education that I think people can gain in this area, um, I think ultimately will reduce the stigma and the shame that's often associated with um, having any types of these behaviors. And Ian talks about the struggle that he had in that continuous loop that he had, you know, when you're caught up with addiction. And, And I could point to numerous times where Um, That happened with my family in the fact that um, you would think, when is this person going to get it? I mean, it's so obvious. And all of our attention is on the sick person. But people need to realize that the people around them are just as sick as well. And um, Ian can probably speak more specifically about the statistics um, around if if the family doesn't get better, then it's not as um, likely that the person that has the addiction or has the illness will get better too. And that's what I really came forward to push for and raise awareness that there are are lots of things out there that people just don't know about. Ian, you know, kind of to that point, the family being the resource and, you know, your, your support team to a large extent. For me, it seems like when I grew up and we heard about people with addiction and, and, and drinking issues and drugs, uh, we didn't call it a disease. I know it hasn't been that recent, but do you think that was a good part of it, is understanding that this is a disease and, and not even so much of a choice? You know, it is not a choice, actually. No one in the world grows up and says, uh, one day I want to grow up and be addicted to alcohol or drugs or crime or whatever. I don't think one person has that intention. Um, it's absolutely a disease. I think that we are not past the stigma. One of the reasons that I am so engaged um, in this conversation with you guys and with and with Karen is that the stigma is still is so strong 
Um, I I work with families. I'm also a certified interventionist, and I intervene on families all the time. And, you know, there's always parents that still have shame or the addicted person identified subject that's uh, full of shame. So we're, we're not past that. And I think that's one of the really important things around, you know, National Addictions Awareness Week. Mm-hmm. And as much time and energy that people like Karen and I can put into educating the public around resources and possible, um, possible healthy outcomes, um, I, I think it's really important for us to get that message out um, any, any any possible way we can. We all, it's true, we need to change our mindset, right? So it, it's not personal is the campaign calling on Canadians to act within their communities to address the addictions and mental health crisis. And, uh, you know, as you guys say, this is not a them problem, it is a community problem. And we thank you both very much for joining us and sharing your stories with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. That is Have Car- a great day. You too. That's Karen Gosby, who's a Calgary mental health and addiction support advocate and an author, and Ian Rabb, who's a recovering addict and a worker at Sandstone Addictions Treatment Centre. Coming up to 849 on the morning news, budget deliberations continue at City Hall this week with discussions surrounding pensions for civic employees and the 2021 funding outlook for the Calgary Police Service. With an update and his thoughts on how the new restrictions put in place by the province will impact Calgarians, we are joined by Ward 6 Councillor Jeff Davison. Good morning to you, Jeff. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Well, let's uh, start with those provincial restrictions. I want to get uh, you know two things from you, and that is your initial thoughts when you heard them come down and uh, the chances of the city of Calgary going into a local uh, state of local emergency. Yeah, well, I think the the chance of us going into a local state of emergency uh, is very high at this point. Uh, Likely that could happen today. However, that really doesn't change much in terms of what we heard yesterday from the province. And so we wouldn't have a bunch of new protocols in place or anything like that. It's really so that our emergency management team can procure items faster and make any necessary changes quicker in the event that they need to. Does it increase enforcement abilities in any way, shape, or form, Jeff? It doesn't really uh, give enforcement increase per se, uh, but it does allow the emergency management team to make decisions on behalf of the city quickly without having sort of that political filter, if you will. Okay, let's uh, talk about those budget deliberations ongoing. Yesterday in focus uh, was uh, pensions, all things pensions, which is kind of, you know, in the past few years become a hot issue in the city of Calgary. Any new moves when it comes to the pensions? Well, I mean, we have removed sort of some of the pension related to the elected officials, let's just say, uh, we've, that's already been done. Uh, going forward, you know, we're obviously looking at how we move to a defined contribution system. However, you know, there's a number of labor laws we'll have to work through in order to get there. But it is something that this council is is committed to to moving forward. I know today also on the agenda is to discuss the the funding or defunding of the Calgary Police Service. So, what does that look like on the agenda for you? Yeah, I mean, this is a it, it's a big topic and it's a difficult one. And I think, you know, we've got a lot of different items that have really kind of created a bunch of confusion around the police budget. I mean, first of all, um, like every department right now, the police have been asked to to make cuts. Um, every Every department is making cuts right now because that's why we have come up with $91 million in base operating uh, reductions. Uh, it's what's going to allow us the decrease of a 1.66% for 2021. Uh, and that's really thanks to a lot of the work we did with the SAVE program. And so police aren't, uh, they're not an outlier in this. Every department has had to look under all the seat cushions and, and find uh, all the extra money. So that's one thing. The second issue is, you know, whether or not 
this notice of motion that has come forward uh, on establishing a community safety framework and reallocating up to $20 million of police funding will move forward. And so there's there's a bit of two different things going on here. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a lot all at once, mm-hmm. uh, but I can tell you, I think council's voting in favor of all sorts of cuts, but I don't think this is going to be one of them. All right, time to get personal, Jeff, because uh, <laughs> you, you, you uh, spoke a lot about the state of local emergency and that potential, but you want to ask from a personal standpoint, your thoughts. Do you think the restrictions put down by the province are enough? Or are they too much? What are your thoughts? You know, it, it, it's really tough, right? I mean, it's it's such a hard balance when you're trying to uh, think about business and health care concerns. And it, it's really, really difficult. And I don't, uh, you know, having been in this position, I don't think... Uh, I envy the province for the work they've had to do. Uh, you know, three weeks ago, I think we had the opportunity to have sort of a 14-day circuit breaker, and we missed that opportunity. Uh, we pressured the province to do that, and we are where we are. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate where we are. Uh, I think it's going to create a lot of uh, havoc with some kids going to school, some kids not going to school. You know, I've already heard from a lot of businesses that say, you know what, just shut us down because at least then I can tap into federal support and get aid because I'm I'm barely alive here as it is. So, um, you know, I think we really should have gone a little bit further in terms of uh, the communications on what's available to people. Um, but it's uh, it, it's a tough decision. There's no There's no right or wrong decision here, right? Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks with your opinions and uh, good luck with the deliberations and get back to it. Have fun. Thanks very much, guys. That is Ward 6 City Councillor Jeff Davison. I don't think budget deliberations are ever fun. Well, no, they're not. And they've kind of been swept under the rug. So I'm glad we all are you know, kind of keeping it you know, relevant to a certain extent mm-hmm. because it's <laughs> rare is it that we have bigger fish to fry because Calgarians love to talk budget, right? It is 9.09 now, and I uh, just wanted to break, break down, uh, we will in a little bit break down some of the restrictions again that were uh, put in place last night by the Premier. But before we get to that, wanted to uh, talk to you about a, a really fun project. You no doubt heard about it, or you might have been sitting on your porch being part of it. Started as a way to bring joy to Calgary families during the initial lockdown. It's now evolved into something much bigger. Photographer Neil Zeller is joining us now with more on his book, porch trips calgary families in isolation during covid19 morning neil morning how are you uh excellent thank you i've seen so many of your photos because boy it really it caught on during the start of the pandemic and uh it is is so evolved into something fun and fabulous that was really a positive during a time that was pretty dark for all of us wasn't it it sure was and it started off basically by necessity because my company had lost all our work um, I had a project. I was heading to the Junos in Saskatoon to photograph the uh, winners' portraits, and it was a it was a dream job for me. And as I was leaving the driveway to head out there, hoping that it was going to go forward because all of this had just started, um, they called and canceled everything, and that was just the first domino of everything that went down. We sat around, my wife and I, um, and tried to figure out what we could do because, as the way we're structured, we're not eligible for CERB. Um, and so we had to do something. And so portraits was started and it just, it really, it it really became something huge. So as far as the actual idea, was this a hundred percent your idea or something like this done in other parts of the world? Yeah, I had thought about, you know, people driving past the house and taking photos just for fun. Um, and then I spotted a colleague in Yellowknife who started what's called isolation portraits up there and really, really heartfelt, beautiful images through the glass and on the porch. And that was it. I just I jumped up, 
ran down the street and uh, photographed a, a close fr- a family friend on their porch, posted it online with a ticketing site, and uh, before you knew it, I was sold out through June. Mm. Um, it was it was really something. Great idea, and uh, you know it really has resulted in in different offshoots for you. I mean, some of your your photos displayed in the Glenbow Museum, and and now you've transitioned in, in creating a book out of these pictures. Yeah, the book. I always thought that the book was an idea that was there. Um, the the portraits that, that I took on the on, you know at their homes, um, most of them were fairly jovial, fairly happy, but there were sure a, a lot of stories behind those photos that I was getting. You know, standing there talking to them, I would walk up to their steps with empathy, and I would say, "How are you?" And, and you know, they would give me a piece of their life, and I just I said, "You know what? There's something here." So. Um, to make a self-funded book um, is, is a pretty big job, but I thought, you know, this needed to be told because this is such a shared experience for Calgarians. And even though you might, might not be in this book, um, you're going to find stories that resonate. It's just, it really is a, a special uh, uh, time. 251 stories um, out of the 600 families I photographed were submitted for the book. So, wow. So not only your beautiful pictures, and if you don't know the name, Neil Zeller, look it up. I mean, you do one bang-up job. These aren't me using my iPhone is what I'm getting at. Uh, but also the stories that accompany it written by the people. So really, you're going to have a, a piece of history to a certain extent, I would think. It really is. It does tell the story of this initial pandemic. Even though we're in still in tough here with what we've got to go through for the next little while, um, that initial four months, you know, we'll, we'll never be able to tell that story the way it was at the time with the fear and the sort of the grieving for our past life. And, and I know we're still going through that, but at that time it was just so raw and unfiltered that, um, you know, we'll never get that moment back. And the story, the stories in the book um, from lost pets to people to joyous moments to, you know, there was, there was people that booked me for pregnancy um, photo shoots that ended up being newborn photo shoots mm-hmm. by the time I got there. So the, the, the range of stories are, are immense. And a chapter dedicated to the 2020 graduates as well, which, boy, that was tough to see so many of these young kids that it should have been such an amazing time of their life. So at least they'll they'll be memorialized this way in the book. Yeah, the graduates were interesting. Um, I think a lot of those those moments are more for the parents than they were for the kids. Mm. Um, but once I got there, the kids saw that this was a really, really celebration moment that they were able to take um, and, and replace what they've lost. Obviously, we want to flip through the pages of this book, but can you give us an example of some of the more unique portraits and and, and give us uh, walk us through what you told these people? Did you tell them how to pose, or was it really just up to them? I would uh, I prepped them with an email and just basically said, "I'm not going to ask you to smile. I'm not going to ask you to frown. This is up to you. So when I get there, I want to capture your essence. So people would be in full, you know, jingle jammies, or they would be in in you know top half in suits and bottom half in shorts. They would." Um, come out and work out where it was really telling that sort of moment story. Um, the other joke I would tell when I got there was, um, you know, this this portrait initiative is just a really elaborate excuse to meet your pets. And, and, <laughs> I, and, I, and, I, and I wasn't, like, the pets are so important to us during this time um, that I spent a, a great deal of time sort of trying to capture their pet essence as well, even though I never pet a single one of them. Like, my COVID protocols for this were to be completely contactless. So these pets would come running up to me and and wonder why I'm not petting them, but I was making really good photos. And there's a really big chapter on, I think there's 220 unique pets in the one chapter for just the, I called them porch pets. <laughs> Love it. And Neil, were there, you know, one or two quick little stories you can kind of give us a snippet of that really touched you more than the others? Oh boy, there's some heartfelt stories in there. Um, 
the Portraits Initiative was for everyone. Um, it, it was by donation, and it was really clear that if you were unable to, you know, pay the donation, suggest twenty five dollars for me to come there. Um, don't don't like this isn't this. It, everybody got the same treatment, um, no matter what sort of amount was put in that donation box. Um, there's families that lost people. There was there's one story that just got me. I was at their place and they were smiling and we were having a good time, but you could just tell that it was off a bit and they just they, they kind of started crying in the middle and turns out they had lost their dad in a plane crash in the Philippines of all places mm-hmm. during COVID um, and were together because of that dealing with trying to uh, to, to manage manage all of that. Um, other heartfelt ones were when people would phone me and say, Neil, you're supposed to be here in two weeks. Can you come this week? Um, because we are putting our dog down. Um, so these were these last photos. So I'm in tears, like taking these photos. On the flip side, there's you know, the joyous moments of a bread, a three-year-old baby, where I had my camera on a 16-foot tall stick because they were on the second floor, and I'm making these beautiful portraits of them. Um, the very first pictures of their of their babies, where they couldn't go out and get these images themselves. Wow, very powerful. It mm-hmm. sounds like it was, you know. Quite therapeutic for you. Was was there something about this weird time for you to have this project that helped you? I was the only one really looking for a way to slow down at, at times because, um, you know, there was 200 and something families I went to in April alone. Um, it, 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 uh, it, I've used this phrase before, but it created a lifeboat for me, uh, my wife and son, Tracy and Andrew, and my company. Um, there's no way that we would have survived through this pandemic um, and and to do it in a way that I could be 100% me where I'm providing this service that's creating joy in a moment of um, pause during this grievous, you know, disparous time. I don't know if I just made up words. But, uh, <laughs> we get the point. <laughs> but it's, uh, it was, uh, um, for, for, for us, it saved our company. It saved our, our home. Um, we were able to pay the bills. You know, it's not easy still. We have to reinvent ourselves every single day right now um, as a company who, in the past, photographed major events, um, corporate work, um, and I traveled and toured people around the world on, on photography adventures, and obviously all of that is gone. So we are working hard to, uh, uh, you know, you know, carry on. But the, the the light is there, I think, with the vaccines and whatnot that are hopefully coming up. But you know, we've got some work to do before then. Well, you gave us positivity back when this whole thing started with these photos that you were taking, and now they're in a book for all to enjoy forever. And uh, we thank you so much for your time. It's uh, portraitsbook.com if you want to order, correct? P-O-R-C-H-R-A-I-T-S book.com. Perfect. Um, The books are arriving in Calgary on December 2nd to start being delivered um, to everyone who's pre-ordered. There are only 300 books left right now. Um, so that those pre-orders are coming in like crazy right now. So I'm very appreciative to Calgary and what they've given back to us. So thank you very much for having me. You've given us a great Christmas gift. Thank you so much. That is Calgary photographer Neil Zeller. Those books, by the way, uh, $55 and maybe uh, as a Christmas gift for you or somebody you love.